You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hey, full and thriving fam. I wanted to let you in on something super exciting. As you know, we open the doors to the Recovery Collective only three times a year, and the next round is coming up for a limited time between January 19th and February 1st. This is honestly the best time for you to join the Recovery Collective because when you join, you will also get access to every single recorded session for all of 2023, completely for free. So if you purchase your membership sometime between January 19th and February 1st, you will be able to access the upcoming 2024 sessions live and watch all the replays from 2023. I cannot think of a better deal than that. So please be sure to mark your calendars and go to recoverycollective.mykajabi.com to get on the wait list so you can be the first to know when doors open on the 19th. Curious to know what it's like inside? Here's what our current members are saying. My favorite part about the Recovery Collective is that as of joining about a year ago, I finally realized how important it is to have a community in recovery. It was definitely a turning point for me to finally talk to someone who's understanding. The people in the Recovery Collective are some of the most lovely, supportive people I've ever met. If you're thinking about joining the Recovery Collective, I have two words to say to you. Do it. Literally just give it a chance. I think you will be surprised in the most wonderful way. Make the jump and join. It's honestly one of the best things I ever did. And I've made some of my best friends from around the world. It's a safe place for me. I know I can say anything and never get judged for it. And I feel that we all truly care about each other. Well, there you have it. Our members have spoken. And I might be a little biased, but I think our community is pretty great too. For more information, check out the link in the show notes and make sure you sign up for the waiting list so you can be the first to join our community between January 19th and February 1st. Are you a middle-aged or older adult human actively struggling with an eating disorder and feel left out of the recovery conversation? Do you feel like you don't fit into the eating disorder stereotype of struggling as an adolescent, teen, or young adult? Are you feeling shame and guilt for handing over decades of your life to your eating disorder? Do you have trouble being a mom in recovery and wonder how it might impact your kids? Today, I sit down with Brandy Walker, a 52-year-old CCI eating disorder recovery coach and owner of Recover You LLC, 
who started her recovery journey 10 years ago at the age of 42 as a single mom and trauma survivor. In this episode, we discuss everything from what it's like to recover at a non-stereotypical stage in life and rebuild your sense of hope and self-worth. We touch on topics like parenting, hope, trauma recovery, and the challenges one faces as they age with an eating disorder. I know you will really enjoy this episode of the show. Hello, hello, Brandy. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Meg. I'm so glad to be here. I am so excited to speak with you today. You are one of my favorite coaches ever, and it is such an honor to have you on Full and Thriving. Oh my gosh. I am like a fangirl. (laughs) This is an honor for me, and I'm just glad that we get to hang out and chat a little bit. Well, I cannot wait to dive in because I really do feel like you have a beautiful story and a very relatable journey. And I think today we're going to bring up so many topics that aren't spoken enough about in the recovery world. And I can't wait to just have you be the person to kind of crack open these topics with me. Oh, special. I'm excited to be here and to talk about it because, you know, you're right. Not a lot of this stuff is spoken about or at least not enough where people can hear it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think in order to set the stage for, you know, our conversation, I know in the intro I've already shared with everyone all about you, but you are a recovery coach yourself with lived experience and you've survived your eating disorder and I'm curious, looking back at everything now, right, what have you kind of figured out were the roots of your eating disorder? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great question. You know, I think it's almost sort of like how we talk with our own clients is it's a combination of sort of my personality type, my temperament. Trauma played a really huge role in it. It was a way to cope. And then also just the messages I received, the overt and covert messaging just from society. You know, I grew up a kid in the 80s. Mom was always dieting. And so sort of kind of the typical perfect storm that kind of comes all together. Mm, mm, So interesting and very relatable there. I think the two pieces that stick out, the trauma piece, and then also those messages that you grew up, the 80s were I was not there for the 80s. I was almost made it into the 80s. But that looked like a very terrible time to be a woman in the world because the standards of how thin you needed to be were like extremely almost impossible to achieve. Yeah, it seems like a tough time. Same with the 90s. That seemed it was a tough time, I'm sure. So (laughs) it's all been hard. Every decade has its own like, special mix of media oppression and stress on women and body image and the standards of beauty. So I'm really curious, though, because I know you have opened up about your experience with trauma. And I'm curious, what was that like for you? And how did you end up using your eating disorder to cope for that? Sure. You know, to be honest, I never knew I had an eating disorder. I thought what I was doing was so normal and like every person, every girl, every woman in America was doing this. And so it was 
I would say we traced sort of through trauma work, we've traced sort of like the body dysmorphia and stuff starting at around age 10. And so it was really just part of me and I didn't see it as disordered. It wasn't until I started having medical complications. And this is where kind of the medical field came in, right? I had, as we know, you know, gastroparesis is really, really common in eating disorders. And so I had a very, very severe case of it for many years. And, you know, I remember the medical field saying, well, it's idiopathic. Not one person said, what is your relationship with food, movement, exercise, anything? And they just kept saying, well, you know, your BMI is low, all of these things, right? So it was like, you're quote healthy. So we're going to chalk this up to idiopathic. And it wasn't until my therapist, whom I had been seeing for six years, I started saying things in our sessions and her antenna went up and then she did the typical screening questions. And she said, you know, this is really hard. She said, but for six years, you've seen me, but I think what we're dealing with is an eating disorder. And I was like, no, you know, (laughs) everybody does this because she was asking me questions like, do you do X, Y, and Z? And I was like, yeah. She's like, do you do this? And I was like, duh. I like, who doesn't do this? You know? And so that's kind of how it happened. And I went straight to residential. They were like, you know, you're going straight to residential. And I remember being in there and thinking, nah, I don't fit in here. You know, this will be two weeks of like, I'll do some yoga and get zen. And boy, did I get a rude awakening. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And so... How old were you when all of this happened? So I was 42 when I was officially diagnosed with an eating disorder and went into treatment. Okay, so this was like, you had this body dysmorphia and everything started at 10, normalized diet culture and dieting inside your home and growing up in the 80s and 90s all just normalizing your eating disorder and your therapist brought this to your attention when you were 42 and then you found yourself at residential at the age of 42 and it sounds like you were in denial of that at first sure because you know and this is gosh this is about 10 years ago you know i had the same sort of flawed image of what an eating disorder looks like, you know? And so I was like, no way. I'm not sick enough. I'm not quote small enough because I thought only thin people, you know, had it. And so it was really a jolting revelation to me about what eating disorders are and who they affect and how they present themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when did it sink in for you that, hey, this is actually a legitimate eating disorder and I'm not just going along with what my therapist is telling me to do? I remember upon intake, did all the intake work and everything, and I'm sitting in the head dietitian's office and she hands me sort of a menu to sort of pick what foods I wanted to eat. And I had this visceral, physical experience of sweating and panic and 
I couldn't even put together a meal. And so that was my first clue. And then my first meal where it was like, you know, you have to eat everything. And that's when I was like, oh, because I had controlled everything so much that I'd never had that reaction before. So they would say, you know, like, what are your fear foods? I'm like, I'm not afraid of anything, (laughs) whatever, you know. But when they set the plate of food and it was like, we need you to eat 100%. And I just sort of lost it. Then I was like, wow, this is not a normal response. That There is something going on here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would definitely do it. I am so surprised that that you hadn't had any moments like that in your regular life where like maybe you're at a party and someone put food in front of you or on vacation and there was limited types of food to eat. Were you just avoidant of food eating and general food experiences or were you always just finding ways to control without thinking too much about where that was coming from? Sure. So, you know, much like everyone that we work with, and maybe you've even experienced, right, we're very praised on how we can control, right? Oh, I wish I was as disciplined as you and everything. So I would eat in front of people. It was just very minimal amount. I get that. Yeah. Right. It was just tiny little things. And, you know, I would go out to dinner with friends or someone and I would order something and then they would call me, of course, you're going to eat that, you know, and that sort of pumped my ego into like, oh, I'm being disciplined. You know, they want to be like me because they're, you know, jokingly calling me names and everything. And to me, it was just, normal. I was just able to do the things that other people wanted to do, which normalized it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like almost some of that identity was formed in that place of like, I can do these things that other people are envious of. And so that makes so much sense. So when you were in treatment, like what was it like being 42 years old? I remember you making a comment to me saying you were one of the older ladies at your residential treatment center. So what was that like for you when you were experiencing it? The place and the milieu I was under, we didn't have as much adult time where, so it was kind of like the adult lived experiences of like being a parent or having a corporate job or those types of things were not as relatable because I was in there with a lot of younger you know, women and even teenagers, you know, 14, 15 years old, and just the life experience is not relatable. And I actually kind of got, I I won't say in trouble, but of course, I got pulled to the side because I was mothering the young ones. (laughs) Right, really helping them, really helping them process things and everything, which was a way for me to avoid my own issues. (laughs) Interesting. So when you were there, did you notice any major differences? And maybe as a coach, you would know this, like what are the bigger differences between someone recovering at a younger age versus middle age or later age? You know, I remember because when I was there, there was a wonderful woman who was there too, who was in her 70s. And so there was like me in my 40s, another lady in her 50s, and then one in her 70s. And then all younger. And what I remember is one of the girls, she was probably 20, 21, maybe said, 
when I get older, I'm going to be like, F this. I don't care what people think of me. I'm going to eat whatever I want to eat. And I remember that being very triggering for the older ones of us because it was like, oh, you know, here you have a 40 all the way up to 70 something year old still dealing with body image and the fear of body changes and things like that. And it's just that life experience, you know. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's such a sad and misinformed comment for someone to make because there's like this assumption that when you get older, you're just going to not care about like things that women care about. Like suddenly you're going to age out of wanting to look a certain way or live up to a quote standard. And I think there's a little bit of ageism baked into that comment. Like, oh, at some point I'm going to be irrelevant enough where this doesn't matter anymore. And I won't care because I will know that. And I feel like that would have been extremely triggering to hear. And I'm so intrigued thinking about the younger ladies listening and the older ladies listening to this episode, because I'm curious, since I'm talking to you, what your thoughts are on that comment. Of course, I could see where she was coming from, right? But for someone who is older, there's even more shame sort of tied to it. I've even had a physician, actually it was a dentist, say, are we still doing this? Like eating disorders are a phase that you grow out of and you mature out of. And that's just not the truth. So you see a lot of women who are my age, who are hiding it and really beating themselves up because it can become a lifelong thing. And for someone to sort of unknowingly say this makes you think to yourself, you know, right? Gosh, I still don't have my crap together, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see how that would be so shameful feeling, right? When you're getting older and you know, people have these expectations that you're going to recover, quote, by now, and you haven't quite made it there, or it's still extremely difficult. Can you explain, and this is a tough, tough emotion, but what was that shame like? And did you experience, you mentioned the dentist's office, but what was it like living for decades with an eating disorder and feeling that shame over time? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting question because I inherently sort of carried shame with me, not really knowing it was shame, but that feeling of unworthiness, undeserving, really trying to overperform and outperform to make up for my lack of and You know, looking back now, I have so much compassion for myself because there is so much mental exhaustion that happens when you're living with shame constantly or feeling not good enough that you don't really recognize it until you've come through it and you can look back. It's an exhausting sort of existence and it's a very lonely existence because you are hiding it. You're not disclosing it to anyone. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I could totally see how exhausting that would be and isolating it would be to be just getting older and carrying this with you for a long time. So 
I know that you also were a mom during this phase of your eating disorder recovery journey. So I'm curious how being a mom impacted your recovery or even just what it was like to be a mom going through this simultaneously. Yeah, I am really difficult and a lot of women are going through this. So I was a young mom. So when I went into treatment, my daughter was 21 and my son was 17. So they were 20. Yeah. She was a senior in college. He was a senior in high school. I'd never been away from them like that. They'd never really seen me as sick. And there was a lot of guilt in how have I influenced my children? What messages have I given my children? What have I done to contribute to their mental health and wellness? And I had to do a lot of work on that. And really, because my kids were older, I was able to sit down and have very frank conversations with them and tell them, look, how this has been going is not helpful. I know it's not helpful. And if there is any harm that you feel I have done or any messaging, I want us to be able to talk about it. If you don't want to talk about it with me, I will provide you with your therapist, you know, a place to do this. And so I really had to move in order for me to recover. I had to move beyond the guilt because guilt will have you, you know, not take care of yourself. Because again, the worthiness, one of the most heartbreaking things I think was when I was home for a recovery and my son was leaving for the weekend and we always left notes on the refrigerator for each other. And he was like, see you guys on Sunday, da, 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 da. And he said, P.S. mom, please eat. And I have a picture of it because again, this parental guilt, right, of my kids are now worried about me. But I don't know if you're familiar, Anne Lamont has a quote that says the best gift you can give to your children is your own healing. And that's so profound, right? Because we spend so much time worrying about the negative consequences of what we've exposed our children to that we don't give credence to how important their witnessing of our own healing, our own asking for support, and how impactful that is on them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is such a beautiful way to look at it, right? It's like probably terrifying to admit that. It, I know it's terrifying to admit you need help. I couldn't imagine how scary it is to admit you need help in front of your children in that state. But I do really believe that you're right. And, you know, that beautiful quote is right is when a child sees their mom go through healing or their dad go through healing, it's almost healing for them because they learn those lessons, those valuable lessons about the importance of asking for help, the reality of mental illness. You know, I've seen people in my family go to residential treatment multiple times and those were during formative years of my life and it, it destigmatized mental illness for me and normalized it, right? In the sense of, you know, I should be prioritizing my mental health and it's important to do so. So I really love how you brought up that important point for parents to hear, which is it's almost healing for the children to see 
you go through your healing journey. Yeah, you know, and just talking like to my kids, we're very, so I was a single mom. So my kids and I are just like, a, we're like a gang, you know, and it's sort of, you know, to hear them speak of it today gave them permission because they really try to live up to my standards, the standards I was modeling for them, but it gave them permission that to be messy and to not be perfect and to look at failure, if you want to say that in quotes, as just a lesson that gives us wisdom, you know, and I'm very blessed that those two kiddos were placed in my life and they were gifted to me because I started looking to them to model more of the behavior I wanted to be like, the being present, not being so hard on yourself. And so it was a two-way street, definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is so beautiful just to know that the three of you were all learning from each other as, as you essentially grew up together. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That is so great. And I also appreciate how you were able to be very open and direct with them about, hey, if there have been any messages I've passed on to you or if you're struggling with anything, let's have a conversation about it. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I tried to do that ever since they were little because that is what I needed as a child. I needed discussion. I needed someone to tell me, I know you've just witnessed this and it was really, really scary. And I didn't get that. It was just sort of things happened and then we just carried on as if they didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is so classic case, right? With eating disorders, it's like the trauma is never explained. It's always just you're left in this state of confusion that gets misinterpreted. But if a parent can sit down and be direct and honest about what's happened or what's going on, that can help the child on so many levels moving forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that about being a mom and being middle-aged during your treatment process. One thing I also wanted to ask you is about the trauma that you experienced when you were younger. I do not expect you to share the traumatic event. But I am curious, when you were in treatment, was that the first time you had really gone to therapy and unpacked that? And did you start to see how the eating disorder and the traumatic experience were related? Yeah. Curious. Yeah, you know, so I had complex trauma, probably from age three, all the way up until and even after I got out of recovery, out, out of treatment. So lifelong and the typical minimization, it's not that bad. You know, people have it worse where things have happened to other people. Suck it up, buttercup, moves on. And so really I had been in therapy, but it was more crisis management was therapy. It was more what's going on right now and sort of putting out those fires versus, wow, this is like a long history that just keeps repeating itself and various types of traumas. And so I think looking at that piece is in having really, really good access to really good therapists who understood both trauma and eating disorders, which I understand is a privilege and not everybody has that. 
helped me to put the puzzles of my pieces together and have a little bit more compassion than I probably would have. Sort of like, well, well no wonder. I see the need that eating disorder is fulfilling. Mm, okay. Yes. So that makes sense. And that's something we do as coaches, right? Is help people find those puzzle pieces and how they all fit together. And I do think when you do look at your life experiences with less judgment, right? And more compassion, it's easier to contextualize the eating disorder, which makes it feel less like your fault. Yes. Yes. And that's what I tell, you know, my clients is I am not one to demonize the eating disorder part. I like to offer it a seat at the table. You know, why are you here? What are you protecting us from? What do you need to not be on alert all the time? Those types of things, because, you know, as we've been coached and taught, you know, it's the reintegration. We don't ostracize the eating disorder. It's it's welcomed in without judgment and and with compassion and, you know, like, wow, would you like to take a rest? Because, you know, we might be able to figure something out now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So can you remember like a turning point where you finally kind of let your eating disorder take a rest? Like, do you have a pivotal moment? your healing where you finally realized you didn't need the eating disorder so much anymore? Hmm. I don't know if it was like a pivotal moment, more so than it was just sort of a, something would happen and I would realize, wow, I handled that completely different than I would have. So those types of moments and like, even if we come down to eating, right? I remember the first time I actually had from the adult menu, not the child's menu, you know, cheeseburger and fries and had eaten all of it without one thought while I was eating it. And like, I just looked down, and it was gone. And I was like, wow, that was almost like I was typing, right? There was no thought put into it. It was just very natural. And, and so those moments were you know, maybe looking at myself in the mirror, which the body part was really hard for me and just not being as mean to myself and kind of going, ah, you know, and being able to walk away instead of fixate and then trying to, you know, go down the rabbit hole of trying to perfect something. Yeah, it was subtle. And then just all of a sudden, I just felt like I have arrived. You know, <laughs> that's why I named my coaching business Recover You, because to recover is to get something back that was lost or stolen, which is you. And, you know, the world gets its hands on us and we get lost in identities. We get lost in trying to survive and protect ourselves. And so it's, tr it's truly an unearthing of who you were born to be with 100% permission to just flourish and do it and let go of the constraints of everything else. That is such a helpful reminder for everyone listening too. It's just like part of recovery is, yes, you're healing the food stuff, right? Like that's the immediate, but you're also getting yourself back. You're getting you back. You're recovering you, which is the name of your practice. And it's so well-named because that's truly what it is. It's the you that you're recovering. You're 
reclaiming is the part of you that can sit with the cheeseburger and be in the moment and enjoy the company and the environment and the flavors and the experience and have pleasure and joy. That's who you are. That's who you are recovering to. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's so nice, Andy. I think that's great. Did you think it was possible to recover in middle age when you were going through it or were you afraid? What did you think about recovery? You know, I really wasn't sure. I actually thought this is something like, because I also have co-occurring, right? I have anxiety, I have major depressive disorder. I will always have to take medication for depression and things like that. So I always kind of thought that I didn't think it would be freeing. I always thought there would be something to manage that I would have to put a lot of intention in. I would always have to be thinking about this and always choosing things wisely with intent. And I, gosh, I can't even describe what it was like to be able to come to a place in your life where you can actually coexist with your anxiety, coexist. And what I learned was how to better care for myself so that I could function at my best, meaning putting up boundaries, making sure my soul is nourished, making sure I have downtime. That's what I needed in order to excel. Not the restriction, not the working overtime, not the constantly going, going, going. That was not conducive to excelling. In fact, it was tearing me down. And so to real, it's not intuitive, right? Because we're not taught that. We're taught go, go, go. You have to do the boardroom, the bedroom, the baseball fields, the PTA. You have to do it all. And the power is in saying, no, thank you. No, I can't right now. I'm still being able to be the badass that we want to be. <laughs> yes. I love how you put that with the word coexisting with your anxiety, right? You're taking care of yourself, which makes it easier to manage the anxiety or the depression that you're living with. And I think that is a sign of flourishing, right? And you were able to make that shift from putting pressure on yourself to do, 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 to just letting that go, relaxing, opening up into like that more rested place. Right, right. Because, you know, so I had a restrictive eating disorder and the whole, I don't have time to eat or the sort of high and the false energy you get from those types of behaviors and reframing it to, no, I have to make eating a priority for me. I have to learn what my threshold and my window of tolerance is. Learning that and how to use that to my benefit was probably the best skill set I've ever learned in my life versus the high expectations that we have. I mean, I worry so much for our youth of being burned out in their 20s because of the pressure and everything. And we're not teaching younger people and especially young adults the power to say no, <laughs> the power to have some boundaries. I will get to this later. This is what I can do. This is what is within my capacity right now. And, you know, just owning that. I don't think that's taught enough or nor is it praised. 
I agree with you. That's one of the greatest gifts recovery forces you to learn, right? (laughs) You got to start saying no. You got to start slowing down and taking care of yourself, prioritizing yourself is such a big one. So that's so helpful. Before I let you go, Brandy, I'm curious as we wrap things up, because you've been so knowledgeable and helpful today, what advice do you have for the ladies who are middle-aged or the older ladies who are struggling right now with an eating disorder? You are worthy of healing and recovery at any age. We don't age out of this. And my mother taught me this a long time ago. She always said, if everyone saved themselves, the world would be saved. And so giving yourself that opportunity to heal and save yourself so that you can continue life doing the things that you love for others and for yourself. We don't age out and everyone at any age is worthy of recovery and healing. It's your birthright. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. And it is so true. Everyone here listening, don't judge yourself for how young or how old you are struggling with this eating disorder. The media likes to make us all think that you have to be a young teen or college-aged girl, but you can be any age struggling with an eating disorder because an eating disorder is a coping mechanism, right? So if you're coping with something, you can turn to an eating disorder at any age. And so there's no shame in seeking help, even if you don't fit that like stereotypical version of what someone with an eating disorder looks like or is like. That's exactly right. Yes. Oh, Brandy, this has been a lovely conversation. I'm so grateful to speak with you and to learn from you. And before I let you go again, could you share with my community of listeners how they can get in touch with you if they're interested in working with you in any way? Sure, sure. So my website is recoveryou.com or they can email me, Brandy with a Y at recoveryoullc.com and happy to chat with anyone, even if I need to help you find a coach. I'm happy to just help anyone that has questions or is even thinking about a tackling recovery at whatever age they are. Lovely. Well, thank you, Brandy. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. Take good care. It was so great to be here with you and your audience. I just love what you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. All right, that concludes this week's episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the show. When you have a moment, please head on over to Instagram and follow my recovery coaching account at Meg underscore McCabe to stay up to date on everything I'm doing in recovery land. And if you're feeling extra inspired, please send me a direct message to let me know how this podcast has impacted your life. I'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next week.